Take your Bibles and turn with me to Acts chapter 8. Acts chapter 8, today is my last Sunday to preach to you as your senior pastor, and I was thinking about what I should say and what, what I would want to challenge you with, and so I began last week with a, a simple thought, parting words, just the, the words to encourage you and, and words to say, really and truly it's about what I want to hear in the future about you. Uh, that I hope when I'm uh, speaking to some of you or texting you or, or uh, checking about how the, uh, the rut's going, you know, when I'm, when I'm checking in, I want to know, how are you doing? And I told you last week that I was hoping to hear two things. I was hoping first to hear that you are a church that is united together, that you are committed to love and serve one another. But then secondly, and really overarchingly, I hope that you are a church that is committed to sharing the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel of Christ. Even this morning, as we have observed baptism, as we've sang to the Lord, as we've even prayed together, we realize that all of this is because we have one hope, and that is in Jesus Christ. That Jesus is our hope. And a church that is healthy, a church that is doing what the Lord has called it out to do, is a church that is actively proclaiming that hope to anyone that will listen. From our neighborhoods to the nations, we want to tell people about Jesus, the Jesus that resurrects us for eternal life, the Jesus that walks with us in the valley of the shadow, the Jesus that knows us when we hurt and when we rejoice, the Jesus that has paid for our sins in order that we may have a relationship with the Father in heaven. A church that's about Jesus. Now, in the days to come, you have a lot of questions you'll wrestle with as a church, and you are well-equipped to wrestle with those. You have in this church wonderful staff and ministers. You have in this church great deacon leadership. You have men and women who have served faithfully for decades. You are equipped to answer those questions, but you have questions you're facing. Who will be your next pastor? What will be the direction of the children's ministry after this interim Period. What will we do to continue to shore up membership? And how will the church look after COVID? And when will we finally remodel this sanctuary? Stop it now, you meddling. <laughs> you have questions to answer. But the greatest question you have to answer today and every day of your life, hear me now, here it is. Who are you going to tell about Jesus? Friends, who are you going to tell about Jesus? Who are you going to look them in the face and say, I know where you can have eternal life. I know where you can have your sins forgiven. I know where you can have joy and peace that passes all understanding. The greatest question the church faces is not who will be the next pastor or children's minister or how much the remodel will take. The greatest question the church faces is, will it be a church that tells people about Jesus? Will it proclaim the gospel? Eleven years ago, you voted on me to be your pastor. I think it was like 270 to 2. Those two, I think, were my children. <laughs> you voted on me to pay the pastor. And when you voted on me, I preached to you from Acts chapter 8. I want to do that again. Would you look with me at Acts chapter 8? I want us to look at the text of a missional church, a church that thinks about the gospel. And I would simply just entitle this message as I did then a decade ago, Rise and Go. Look with me at Acts chapter 8, starting in verse 26. Now the angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go towards the south, to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. 
And he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all of her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning seated in his chariot. And he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join in this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this, like a sheep was led to the slaughter and like a lamb before the shearer is silent. So he opened not his mouth in his humiliation. Justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. Verse 34. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does this prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? And then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with the, with the scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along on the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, and Philip and the eunuch, uh, and Philip and the eunuch, and he was baptized. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more. And he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Astus and was passed through. He preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Would you pray with me this morning? Father, help us now. Help us, Lord, see from your word why we are to rise and go. Why there are people in desperate need of hearing the good news of Christ. Why there are people who need the hope of Jesus. Why the world is desperate for the answer of their sin and their guilt. Why the world needs to know who is the healer. Father, help us today. I pray, Lord, that this congregation, this church, this family in which I love, I pray today, Lord, they would be challenged. They would be challenged. Each and every one of them would pursue a heart and a passion to tell people about Jesus. Lord, the church does many wonderful things, and Scripture gives us much that we are to do together. But the chief of which, the height of, the priority of, is to proclaim the gospel. And so I pray, Lord, I ask you over the next few moments, help us to be a people that rise and go. Lord, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. In the text, we have the story of the church being born. In the book of Acts, the church has been launched after Peter preaches at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, and the disciples and the apostles are sent out proclaiming and church planting. We have the story of the church being born. The gospel is spreading. People are hearing the good news. They are going from place to place proclaiming it. As Bill Bright would say, they are one beggar telling another beggar where they found bread. They are proclaiming the good news. This is what we have, the news of Jesus. And what we have in the text is an individual occurrence where Philip is sent to share the good news with a particular person. And from this particular story, now granted, there are things in here that do not apply to us. Do not expect to share the gospel in Hoover, Alabama, and then all of a sudden say amen and be wished away by the Spirit over to maybe um, Texas, right? Like, that's a Philip thing in the New Testament. The Holy Spirit doesn't need to wish you. He could if he wanted to. Now, let's be clear. But that's not how he's operating in the days of the church. So this is a unique story. But there are truths in the story that apply to us and truths that I hope you will take serious. I hope as a church, you will latch on to these 
truths. And it's simply this. I encourage you, I challenge you to rise and go. In fact, if you look there at the very beginning of the story, God told Philip, rise and go. Get up and go for Jesus. Now, there are three truths here that you need to see. How do you become a church? How do you become a Christian? How do you become a follower of Christ that is passionate about rising and going for the name of Jesus? Truth number one, we rise and go because God has commanded it. We rise and go because God has commanded it. You remember, as a child, when you would ask your parents something and they would explain it to you, and then you would ask again and they would graciously explain it to you, and then you would ask again, and eventually you got to this statement, because I said so, right? If they would tell you as a young parent how many times you will use that phrase, you would be blown away, right? Am I right? Because I said so. And when you make that statement to your children, there is a sense of authority. There is a sense of responsibility. I'm in charge of you. I know what's best for you. I'm about to knock you out, like, right? That's, that was a joke, by the way. Uh, but, but you say to your children, because I said so. And in that phrase is the command of one who has authority over another. Well, brothers and sisters, one of the reasons why we should be about sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ is because the Father has said so. God has said so. He has commanded us to go. Look at the text with me. See verses 26 through 28. Now the angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go towards the south. The angel is the mouthpiece of God here. So God is giving this command. To the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, the queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all of her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship. And he was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. Now, there are some interesting things about this command of God to rise and go that I want you to see. The first interesting thing that I want you to see from this is that God has no regard for place. When he tells us to go somewhere with the gospel, he doesn't have regard for the place. He doesn't tell us, well, go there if it's okay. Go there if you feel right about it. Go there if you think it's necessary. In fact, we learn in the text that he sends Philip to one of the worst places in Jerusalem. There were two roads that Philip could have taken, the eunuch could have taken. This road is what we refer to here in the text as the desert road. It is the winding road. It is the road in which is less traveled. It is the road that is more dangerous. It is the road that you and I would not be seen traveling down if we were commoners in the Jerusalem area. But God tells Philip, go down the desert road. He has no regard for place. The gospel has no regard for place. The gospel is not go to where it's safe. The gospel is not go to where you think you'll like it. The gospel is not go where you think it'll be fine. The gospel is go where God calls you. The gospel is go where he says. The gospel is go where I have commanded you. He has no regard for place. In fact, if you were to reach back up a few chapters into chapter, uh, uh, earlier part of Acts there above, you'll find that Philip is in Samaria preaching the gospel. He's preaching the gospel. He's healing people. In fact, people are flocking to him. It's so busy that John and Peter come to join him in Samaria to preach the gospel. He's in the process of building a mega church in Samaria for the gospel. He's in the height of it. I mean, it is growing at the seams. And then God says, hey, I want you to go down that lonely, dangerous desert road where you're going to meet one person that needs to hear the gospel. God has no regard for place when it comes to the gospel. Brothers and sisters, if you're going to be people who follow the command to share the gospel, place cannot come into play. 
Place cannot come into play. It is, God, where would you have me go? I will surrender. I will go where you send me. God not only has no regard for place, he has no regard for status. If you read chapter 8, you'll find that uh, Philip is in the middle of building a megachurch, that he is reaching people, that they're flocking to him, that he's growing an influence, that he's growing a platform, that he's growing a place where he could do great things for the gospel. But then, right as he did in the middle of that, God calls him away. He has no regard for status when it comes to the gospel. He has no regard for status. What does this mean for you and for me? It means simply this. God doesn't necessarily need you to build up some sort of platform to be good at the gospel. You don't have to be the pastor to be good at the gospel. You don't have to be the Sunday school teacher to be good at the gospel. God uses all people in every place who are available to him to share the good news. It's for all of us to share the good news. And so he has no status here that he matters about, or he, he has no care for the status of Philip. He doesn't care that Philip's building this great mega church in Samaria. He cares that the eunuch will hear the good news. So he sends Philip. The glory of the Lord must be our focus. It must be where we put our eyes. It can't be on who we're reaching or where we're reaching. It's about all who need to hear the gospel. And the glory of the Lord must be our priority. God has no regard for person when we hear this command. Look with me at the text again. Notice the characters. Philip, Jewish by descent, disciple of Jesus, an apostle, one who's been in Jerusalem, walked with Jesus, one who's been now uh, in Samaria, hearing the gospel preached, proclaiming the thing. Where is he sent? He's sent to the other side of the town, down the road that's not his, to a man that looks nothing like him, from a country that's not like him, from a background that's not like him. He's sent to an Ethiopian eunuch that would be as far as you can reach from a Jewish man from Jerusalem. Don't you know what we learn from this text? The gospel doesn't care about skin color. The gospel doesn't care about background or economics or where you live. The gospel doesn't care about what road you go down. The gospel cares about lost people hearing the good news. God cares about people hearing the gospel. He has no regard for person. He has no regard for person. This is a different man from a different place. But you can look at the story and see that God sent his servant to share the good news. Now, you might be saying to yourself, which is a great way to think. I know you're thinking it. Yeah, but this is Philip. This is Acts. This is a special story. He was sent with special courage down a special road because the angel told him to go. This ain't me. I'm not living there. I'm not there. I haven't seen Jesus resurrected physically. I'm not an apostle. I can't raise the dead as they were able to do. I can't heal the sick as they were able to do. Heck, I live in Marin Junction, and you can't find that on the map. Some of you are mad right now. I know the secret handshake. I can get in. The idea is, the idea is simply this. We are all called. Let me recall for you Acts 1.8, and the Spirit of God will come on you. And when you receive the Spirit, you'll have my power. And what does it say? You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Can I help you there? Just fill in the blank. Uh, Valley Grand, Dallas County, Alabama, everywhere, right? That's where you're going to be, right? You're going to share the gospel, you're going to proclaim the good news. When God commands us to be people who rise and go, we must understand that He's calling us everywhere and anywhere to anybody for His glory. How often, brothers and sisters, have you walked past somebody instead of sharing the gospel because you thought, they don't look like me, talk like me, think like me, they won't ever listen to me. Can I let you in on a secret? It ain't you they got to listen to. 
It's the truth of the gospel. When God commands us, we are to go. Not only do we see in this text that we are to rise and go because God has commanded us, we see in the text that we are to rise and go because the Spirit is drawing. The Spirit is drawing. The Spirit is working. Going back to the analogy of parenting, you remember when your mama said, this is going to hurt me more than it hurts you? What a lie. What I mean, just come on, mama, tell me the truth. But you know what you learn in that sentiment? You learn the fact that, that mom and daddy know something. They know about pain and hurt and relationship. They know about building you up in the right character. It does hurt mom and dad more. It does hurt to see children uh, disobey or fall apart or break. And what you learn in that analogy is, is that mamas and daddies are thinking about things much larger than the child is thinking about. Well, the same is true in the gospel. You and I might be thinking about getting our neighbor to the Lord. The Lord's thinking about how to reach the world. You and I might be thinking about how can we pray for our sister-in-law, our brother-in-law, our cousin, our aunt, our spouse, our children. The Lord's thinking about how can we get the gospel to the nations. He is drawing people to himself because he's a God who rescues. I've read the Bible. God is the central figure of mission. God is the sending God. Jesus is the Messiah, the missionary that came to rescue us. The church is launched so people will hear. God is about saving people and he's drawing people to himself. And we learn this in John chapter 16 that the Spirit will fall and show us our sin and convict us of our lack of righteousness and draw us unto the Father so that we may have faith to respond. Listen to me now. I want to be very clear with you. You would not be saved if the Spirit of God didn't work on your heart. That is God and His grace rescuing us and redeeming us and drawing us. And let me tell you one more truth. God didn't draw you to stop it there. He drew you so you can tell someone else that he's already drawn. And so notice what happens in the text. He says in verse 32, excuse me, verse 29, he says these words, and the Spirit said to Philip, now God's up to something. God's been working on this unit. God had him come to Jerusalem to worship. God had had him read. Did, did you notice what he's reading? He's reading the prophecy of Jesus dying. Of all the things he could have been reading, I'm thankful that I didn't have to roll up on a eunuch and he's reading something in the middle of Leviticus, aren't you? Like, boy, I'm glad I didn't have to explain numbers to him right there on the side of the road, right? He's reading about Jesus. I think God's up to something. I think God's doing something. God's drawing this man into the gospel. He just needs his mouthpiece to finish the work, to proclaim the good news. So notice what he does in verse 29. He says, And the Spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah. And the prophet asked, Do you understand what you are reading? Verse 31. And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Man, talk about an evangelistic moment. He's reading the Bible. He needs a messenger. All of a sudden, God sends a messenger. God invites him up on the chariot. They even had two seats on that chariot. God was prepared, wasn't he? They brought, I have no idea if they had two seats on the chariot, by the way. They brought him up on the chariot, and they spent time together studying the Word. The Spirit is drawing People, one of the truths that we understand as believers is this. We are saved because the Spirit is drawing us and convicting us and enlightening us. Paul would tell us that the cross is foolishness to the world, but it's the Spirit that helps us understand how beautiful the cross is and our Savior. It's the work of the Spirit. And listen, 
If the Spirit of God was working in you to draw you to salvation, we can conclude that the Spirit of God is working in other people. And that He wants people to save. That He wants to rescue people. That He wants to draw them in. And so we should be about sharing the gospel because the Lord is working in people's lives. Now I know what you're thinking. Yeah, but God's never whispered in my ear, hey, go over to that person. They're reading the Bible. They're ready to get saved, right? He's never whispered that in my ear. I've never heard God say to me, hey, I want you to go down this desert road. You're going to meet a guy reading John 3, 16. I need you to close up the deal, all right? I've never heard him say that to me. But I have heard him say this, go and make disciples of all nations. I have heard him say, you'll be fishermen of Men, I I have heard him say, go and proclaim my news. Let your light shine among men so they may see your good works and glorify the Father. I heard him say, go and do. And you might say, well, how do I know where the Spirit is working? It's not that hard. I'll give you a couple of cues to listen for. Here's what you can listen for. When you're at work and somebody says, man, my life is falling apart. Spirit's working. When you're at work and somebody says, I just found out some really bad news. Spirit's working. When you at work and say, man, I was at church the other day and I totally didn't understand what the preacher was saying. You, you're ready. Spirit's working. When you're uh, at the mall this weekend and somebody says, I wonder what we're going to buy for an Easter dress. Spirit's working. They're talking about Easter. Right? If Walmart can talk about Easter, we can talk about Easter. Come on, preacher. You're meddling now. Spirit's working. You sit down with someone at lunch. They say, man, my marriage is really struggling. Spirit's working. When we have knowledge of a problem, we're on the right track of finding the solution. When we have a conviction over an issue, we're on the right track. You don't need a solving answer until you know you have a serious problem. And so when you figure out you have a serious problem, which it ain't hard to figure out when you walk and talk with people, they know they have a serious problem and we have a sure solution. And so we listen. Henry Blackaby famously said in his experience in God, look where Jesus is working and join him. Right? Find where God is moving and be a part of it. We should be about the gospel because God is drawing people. Number three, and finally I'll close with this. We should be about the gospel because Jesus is saving. We rise and go because God has commanded it, because the Spirit is drawing and because Jesus is saving. Look at verse 32. Listen to how he finishes the text. He says in verse 32, Now the passage of Scripture that he was reading was this. This is from Isaiah, by the way. Like a sheep who was led to the slaughter, like a lamb before its shear is silent, so he opens not his mouth in his humiliation. Justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life was taken away from the earth. The prophet is reminding us about what will happen to Jesus at the cross. And the eunuch said to Philip, Philip, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this is about himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with the Scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. Can I help you here? He said, well, I'm not sure about how to share the gospel. Let let me tell you what the gospel is not. The gospel is not God came to give you a great life. The gospel is not God came to make your marriage great, your bank account grow, or every day to be full of health. Here is the gospel. The gospel is that you are a sinner separated from God, and in your sin you will die and spend eternity away from an eternal God. But this eternal God, in His love, sent His one and only Son 
to walk this earth, to carry our sin on his shoulders, to become the curse for us and die in our place, facing the wrath of God where we should have stood, buried in our tomb and rose from the grave so that that same God, that same Christ, that same Savior would say to us, there is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. Listen to me now. The gospel is Jesus. John would say, as Jesus made his way to the baptism water, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Jesus would say in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. Paul would tell Timothy in 2 Timothy, for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able. Listen to me now. The gospel is Jesus. And you might say to me, well, pastor, I'm not real good with words. I'm not real good with sharing the gospel with people. Let me let you off the hook. If they're lost, you ain't going to make them any more lost. If they're destined to be separated from God, you're not going to make that any worse. But if you give them Jesus, they got a chance. They're on the trail. They have found the solution. Let me help you here. Philip gives us a witnessing tool. Let me give you some practical advice this morning. How can you be a person that shares the gospel? You might be right now thinking about a cousin, a friend, a neighbor, a spouse, a child, someone you know that needs Jesus. Someone you know that if they were facing death, they would not be sure of their eternity. They're facing struggle. They don't know. Let me give you some help here. Let me give you some practical advice. He gives us a witnessing tool. First, we see that he starts with the Word of God. Witnessing begins with the Word of God. The Bible says in Romans, uh, <coughs> excuse me, chapter 10, verse 17, faith comes out hearing and hearing by the Word of the Lord. Listen to me now. Witnessing starts with the Word of the Lord. If you try to witness without the Bible, you have cut the cord of what witnessing is. Witnessing is sharing the good news of the Scripture. Witnessing is proclaiming the good news. And you might say, well, I don't know the Bible all that well. Well, listen, let me help you. Memorize John 3.16 and you've got the gospel. Write down John 14.6 and you've got the gospel. Write down John 1 and 12, for as many as believed in Him and have received Him, they have the right to be called sons and daughters of God. Write down Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus. Romans 5.8, yet while we were still sinners, Christ died for me. Romans 10.9 and 10, that if you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus Christ came and died and was buried according to the Scripture and rose again on the third day, you can be saved. How about giving them Romans 10.13, for whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Listen to me now. Learn a verse. Learn a passage. Learn a scripture. Walk into the story with the word of God. Don't go to a witnessing without the tool, without the sword, without the very message of the gospel. Witness with the word. The apostle Peter would put it this way. He would say in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, these words. But in your hearts, honor Christ as Lord, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Why are you saved? What verse broke your heart? What story brought you to Jesus? You might say, well, pastor, I, I, I'm not good at memorizing anymore. I'm, I'm losing the ability to memorize things. Well, I'll, I'll press back on you just a little bit because I'll bet you you can rattle off some song lyrics and phone numbers, but we'll let you have it. You don't memorize very well. You know what's so awesome about the Bible? It's written down in a book. You know what's so great about technology? You can Google it real quick. When you witness, use the word. When you have your testimony paired with the Word of God, you have the weapon that Satan cannot conquer. The witnessing of a thing. Let me give you a second truth about witnessing. And that's simply this. Not only must it start with the Word, it must center on Jesus. 
Witnessing must center on Jesus. Jesus didn't die to give you your best life. He didn't die so you could feed the poor. He didn't die so your bank account could grow. He didn't die to just rescue your marriage and make you the greatest thing on earth. He died so that you may have life everlasting. He came and lived and died and was buried and rose again so that we might be saved before God. The gospel is Jesus Christ, death, burial, and resurrection. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, For I delivered unto you of first importance that Christ came and died. But he died. The gospel is Jesus. It centers on Jesus. You bring the word of God and the person of God, which is Jesus, to the witnessing story. And then finally, let me show you the last part, and that's simply this. When you're witnessing and when you're sharing the gospel, you commit to make disciples. You don't leave them just asking questions. You guide them in the way. Let me show you what I mean. Look at verse 36 and 39, or through 39 here. And as they were going along, or or excuse me, verse 35, then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with the scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. He gave him a Bible lesson right there in that chariot. We don't know how long they were on the road. We don't know how long they sat in the chariot. We don't know how long they traveled. But however long they were together, Philip gave him a Bible lesson. Philip took him to VBS right there on the chariot, right? He walked him through the scripture. Now notice what happens in verse 36. As they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here is water. What presents me, what prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water. That's immersion, by the way. Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and they went about his way rejoicing. You know what baptism symbolizes? It symbolizes discipleship. It symbolizes that we brought someone to the knowledge of Christ. They're saved. Baptism doesn't save us. We know this. Baptism is the declaration of salvation. It's the symbol and the sign of being with God. It's the the proclamation of the church that this one has identified with Jesus. It is uh, saying we've been buried and resurrected with Christ. But baptism is certainly the progression of discipleship. If you call yourself a believer and you've never been baptized, then you are disobeying following the Lord in discipleship. Discipleship means putting one foot in front of the other, following the Lord. And the first step of the believer is to learn the knowledge of baptism and produce that in their life in front of the church. And so what we have here is that Philip took this eunuch, explained the Bible to him, told him about Jesus, taught him about discipleship, let him know what baptism meant, and he was so convinced that they pulled the chariot over and went into the water. Now, some might argue this means baptism should be spontaneous. That's not what we read here. We read about two adults that spent time studying the Bible. And when the adult was consciously aware and intellectually right about what baptism meant, it was time to be baptized. This doesn't mean moms and dads, you have to rush your children into baptism. They're somehow in disobedience. You disciple them, you instruct them, you teach them. And when they're ready, you pull the chariot over and go get in the water. This is what we learn here, that evangelism means discipleship. Why do I say that to end this sermon? Because I want you to reach people with the gospel. But I don't want you to just reach people with the name of Jesus. I want you to plant them firmly in the family of God. I want you to grow them in the Lord. Oh, that I would hear that you are a church. That your water bill is off the charts. Because the baptism stays full. Because the gospel is being spread. Because you've decided, I'll go down that hard road. I'll go across to the other neighborhood. I'll go to people who don't look like me or sound like me or talk like me, and I'll tell them about Jesus with the Word of God. I'll give no respect to place or person or status. I'll share the good news. We are all called to do this. 
Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20. The Great Commission. It reminds us of this. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. This is the words that Jesus gave us before he left. His very final words. Go tell other people about me. Oh, that we would be a church that does that. One of the great ways for the church to remember the gospel and remember the priority of the gospel is at the table of the Lord, the Lord's Supper. I want you to do me a favor. If you're here this morning and you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you know that you are a Christian, you know you've given your life to Christ, and you are standing before Christ in good status. That means there is no rebellion openly grievous against you in the Lord. You have confessed your sins and you're prepared this morning. I want to invite you to take out your elements. We are in these COVID days, so let's all rip the plastic together. We see the sunlight, though. There's light at the end of the tunnel. It's coming. Uh, so go ahead and open both your elements. We'll get the awkward cellophane rattle out of the way to begin with. And hold those in your hand. If you're here this morning and you didn't pick one of those up, maybe you said, well, I'm, I'm not sure about salvation. This is not for me. Or, or, you know what, I've really got a heavy heart and me and the Lord are battling over some sin right now and, and I'm not in a place for this. Or, or maybe you're here with your children. Moms and dads, this is not for those who are not believers, but, but you can encourage them that the day will come. The encouragement will come that the Lord is faithful. But for the church, we gather around this symbol, this sign. And we do it to remember the gospel. The Lord Jesus knew that we are hard-headed, forgetful people. And in doing so, he gave the church two ordinances to always have the gospel in front of us. One being baptism. Baptism is a proclamation of the gospel. We were dead in our sins. We are buried with Christ. We resurrect now with Christ forever. We are with Christ. Baptism is the gospel. Miles Avery preached a sermon to us this morning. She gave us the gospel. And now the church picks up the cup and the bread and we are reminded again of the gospel. We are reminded of what Jesus did for us. Listen to the words of Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. As he describes the Lord's table. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after the supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in, in remembrance of me. Now, this is the verse I want you to hear. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. The Lord's Supper for us is the gospel. It is that Jesus died for us 2,000 years ago. But it's not just the gospel of death in the past. It's the gospel of forever glory in the future. For we proclaim not only did Jesus die for us, but Jesus will come again for us. This is what we proclaim in the table. The night of his death, Jesus had his disciples in the upper room. And he took the bread and he broke it. And he said to them, this is my body broken for you. And he would tell them that every time you eat it, Remember how I died for you. Eat this in remembrance of me.
And after he broke the bread and he gave it to them, he picked up the cup. The cup in Scripture symbolizes many things, one of which is this cup of dredge, this cup of of curse, this cup of wrath. He knew that even as he shared this cup with them, he would soon drink the full cup of God's wrath. He looked at them and he said, This is my blood poured out for you. All of your needs, all of your wants, all of your desires, the rescue plan is found in the precious blood of Calvary. Jesus says to the church, every time we drink the cup, we remember the blood that flowed down and the day that he died, and we proclaim he is coming again. Drink this in remembrance of me. Would you pray with me? Father, we love you. We thank you for the opportunity to gather as a church to proclaim your goodness, to proclaim your glory. We thank you, Lord, that we have been reminded today the full weight of being a part of the church, how important it is to be in the body of Christ. We've seen it in the celebration of baptism that this is for the church. We've seen it in the preaching of the word and the singing together that this is what the church does. We've seen it in the praying for one in need. We've seen it in the Lord's table. We are reminded that the church is is your people called out, knitted together. And even more, Father, as as we face uncertain days, we need each other. We need to be committed to one another. And I pray for this congregation, this family. Lord, I pray that, that you would stir in them a passion, that you would, you would light in them a fire to be a people that shares the gospel, that tells others about Jesus. Lord, I pray that when you see fit to lead them, their next pastor, that the line to be baptized is backed up. That the gospel has been proclaimed down every desert road. God, give us a passion to tell people about you. For you alone can save. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.